Um, I have a scenario for you guys. So an old man dies, leaves behind two sons, and in his will he orders that those sons must race their horses, and whoever is the slowest will get the inheritance. So the two sons, they get up on that race, and they, they, they start it off. Except it doesn't really work because they're both holding back their horses and neither one of them wants to progress. And so the scenario doesn't really work. They finally give up and say, you know, we need, we need some advice. So they go to the, the old town wise men, go in and they ask him, what should we do? He gives them some advice and then after that advice, they go for the next day, set up the race and boom, they both take off as fast as they can and they finish the race. So the question is, is what did the old man tell him? What did the wise man tell him? How did he figure out the solution? I love these kind of questions because they cause you to think. Uh, in fact, I love listening to riddles. Uh, it, there's a whole uh, channel on YouTube that I go to. They're like TED Talk riddles. And I love, I think I've I'll listened to all of them. Um, and I love just listening to them, thinking them out. I'll pause them. I'll sit on them for like an entire day. Uh, before I push play again to find the answers. And if I haven't figured out by day, then it's not going to happen, right? You just give it up. That's, <laughs> that's too, too smart for me. And so I love these kind of riddles. I love questions. Questions are so powerful at moments. They're so uh, amazing to be used. They can answer so many questions with another question. They can cause you to think. They can cause you to reflect. And in fact, biblically, God constantly uses questions to challenge his people. To, to make them think, to make them pause, to cause them to think outside the box. Uh, I just have a few examples for you of where we find those things. Uh, the first one is right at the beginning. Uh, right in Genesis chapter 3, we see Adam and Eve, after they have sinned, after they've eaten from the fruit of good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil, they come to this moment of realizing that they've messed up. And so they go and they hide in the bushes. And then Jesus, or God, comes down at that moment, at the cool of the day, it says, and he calls out to him. He says, where are you? Now, he asks them a question. Now, that wasn't because Adam and Eve were secretly amazing at hide-and-seek. In fact, I think of them much more like my two-year-old son, that they were like maybe like behind the bush like this, closing their eyes, right? Obviously, you could see them, because uh, hiding wasn't something they were used to. They had never done it before in their life. They've never hidden from God for any reason. So why would they be any good at it? But I think the reason why God was calling out to them, where are you? Is because he wanted them to understand, to, to check their heart. Why am I hiding from God? I've never hid before. What is causing me to do this? And this could have been a moment where they could have repented. If Adam at that moment would have said, I've messed up. We've messed up. God, we need your help. Maybe the story of our history would be different. But unfortunately, they dove headfirst into sin. Adam's response is not to take ownership of his sin, not to repent, but instead to shift blame to the woman, and then the woman to shift blame to the situation, to the, the snake. Shift blame, shift blame, and down the rabbit hole of sin we go. God used a question to try to prod out repent repentance, to pull that out of them, but they weren't ready. Again, God uses this in Isaiah 6, where uh, God has lifted up Isaiah to the heavenly courts, and, and he cleanses him of his sins. He touches the coal to his lips and cleanses him of his sin and his people's sin. 
And then after doing so, they're in this heavenly court moment where he's just caught up into heavens. And, and God asks a question. He says, Then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And whom will go for us? Meaning, who will go into the world and preach the gospel, preach the, about repentance and the coming Messiah? The question is announced to the room, but it is Isaiah who responds. Isaiah, at that moment, feels the call. He hears the question, just the same as everyone else, but something stirs in him because he knows God has just cleansed him. He's commissioned him for this moment. And so now Isaiah answers the call. He says, here I am. Send me. Now, God always knew that he would send Isaiah, right? He always knew that was going to be what happens. But he asks a question so Isaiah would own it. He uses it as a question, as a way to call someone to action, to lead them to action. Another, uh, we, could, we could spend all day on the way that Jesus uses questions to dive deeper into situations, to, to kind of cipher out where he was trying to be tricked or, or to get out a, a heavenly truth. All through the Gospels, as you read what Jesus says, it's always full of, he, he gets asked a question, so he, he answers with a question because he wants to get at the heart of the matter. Uh, one of those examples is in Matthew 22, uh, where uh, the... The religious leaders are coming to him, and they're asking him questions. They're trying to trick Jesus with this uh, fancy questions that they all thought up. My guess is this is actually just a question that they got asked a few times that they didn't know the answer to. So they're like, let's throw it to Jesus. You know, let's see what he says with this. And so in Matthew twenty-two nineteen through 21, they're asking him a question. They're saying, you know, are we supposed to pay taxes to Caesar? Should we pay Caesar taxes? You know, because we're loyal to God. We're loyal to the temple, and so we pay taxes to the temple. Should we not pay to Caesar, who thinks of himself as a god? And so Jesus asks them a question, starting in verse 19. It says, show me the coin used to pay taxes. They brought him a denarius and asked them, whose image is on this and whose inscription? They, they replied, Caesar. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. So he asks a question and he's diving to a harder solution, right? To a, a, a bigger question there. You know, you guys are so worried about money and who gets the money. And he says, why don't you give God what is God's? Where, where is God's image imprinted on? Where is it inscribed? It's on humanity. He says, don't worry about where the money's going. Where's your heart, leaders? Where's the heart of our people? Where, where are we going? Where are we living our lives? That's what Jesus is getting at with them. And he's prodding their hearts. He's causing them to repent. He's, ca he's calling them to repent, although they don't. All throughout Scripture, constantly, we will see God use question after question after question to get at our hearts, to lead us to repentance, to lead us to action, to lead us to grow. It's an amazing tool. The ability to ask questions is actually, I think, far more powerful many times than knowing all the right answers. Knowing all the right answers, you can sit there all day, but sometimes a question will do all the work of all those answers. And so as we get into our main text today, we'll actually be Acts 17, and I invite you to turn your Bibles there, Acts 17, that'll be our main uh, focus today. We are going to be looking at a moment where Paul asks a lot of questions, makes some statements, makes some arguments, 
and how he kind of walked through each of those things. But as we go through that, I want to invite you to understand that the reason why we're looking at this is because God uses questions in some amazing ways. He grows, grows uh, our faith and helps us to realize that sometimes we've believing false things or we've made some false assumptions, and he's calling us to turn away from those things. You know, for the last two months, we've been all about telling you guys about this infectious faith and how we can share our faith with people around us. And I think it would be kind of irresponsible and maybe a little dishonest of us for us to just say, you know, hey, if you just go out there, invite people over to your house and uh, tell them your, your testimony, that, that they will repent at, the, that, that, at that dinner table, they'll change their life, and, and God will be glorified, and, and everything will go just smooth. When the reality is that sometimes when you share your testimony, they have questions for you. Or sometimes they're going to then share their story, which might be very against what you believe and counterintuitive. Uh, and, and just you might have a lot of, I don't know if we, we believe the same thing. Maybe we come from two different spots here. How, should we back away from that friendship? Should we steer away from those kind of conversations? What should we do in those situations? And so what we want to do is help you... Uh, sunrise, help us as Sunrise to know how do we approach those situations where we, we sit at the table with a friend or a stranger that we're getting to be friends with, and they come from a different worldview than us. Are we allowed to ask questions? How do we do that? And, and how do we respond when they ask us questions? How do, how do we handle those situations? And so again, we're looking at Paul and the way that he handed that situation, and we'll go from there. So, uh, Acts 17, verses 16 through 34, and we're looking at Athens, Paul in Athens. This is what the word of the Lord says for us today. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of uh, Epicurean uh, and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is, the, what is uh, this babbler saying? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to the meeting of Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know this news uh, teaching that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at the objects you worship, I even found an altar with an inscription to an unknown God. So you, you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord, uh, sorry, let me say that again. The, the God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in a temple built by human hands, but he is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything, 
Rather, he himself gives everyone life, breath, and everything else. From one man he made many nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appropriate time in history and boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he was not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are his offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design or skill. And in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere, repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. And others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at this, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers. Uh, Paul, uh, uh, some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dinarius and um, the member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So, notice what Luke says here. We're going to kind of go through this chunk by chunk, but Luke kind of starts this off with uh, talking about Paul being in Athens. And I love how we uh, hear about this because uh, Paul or Luke is the author of Acts. He's, he's the one that researched, uh, did all the research about who Jesus was and wrote the gospel of Luke. And then also now is kind of documenting what God's doing in the early church. And uh, that's where we get Acts from. Um, so it's the same author. And so he talks about Paul and he says, you know, he was in Athens, but really he was just supposed to be hanging out there. He was supposed to be waiting on Timothy and Silas to be coming from the town over. And so he wasn't, they weren't planning to do a big like thing there. He wasn't going to be planning a church there. They were just hanging out there as they were going to go to another place. Um, But then he starts to look around and Paul gets a little fidgety. He's not one to just sit around, do nothing. And so he starts to pace around the, the community and he starts to have conversations with people at the synagogue and uh, in the marketplace. And he's just moved. He's moved by everything he sees there. He's, he's unsettled. He's frustrated. He, says, he looks and he sees all these idols all around him and, and he can't just sit in that. He can't just allow that to be what it is. And part of that is Athens is not some backwoods community. Athens is actually like the peak of the education of the Roman world. This would have been where people would have tried to go to to get an education so they could make something of themselves. Uh, Just think of any UC community, uh, you know, really in the United States, like Berkeley or the community around Harvard. They they were just known for this educational place being amongst them and and the tolerance they had, you know, of all these other religions and all these truths out there. And they can just sit there and they can talk about these things. They're very uh, smart. They thought of themselves as very wise. And so uh, that's where Paul is. He's he's, uh, with them and uh, Paul goes to the synagogues first in verse 17, and, and he starts to talk to the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, and Paul goes to find the local believers and talks with some of them, and he goes to, to the marketplace and talks with them. And this time, Paul is just presenting the gospel. He's presenting Z- Jesus, 
but he's also just learning about the culture, about what's going on there, what's important to them. He's doing research. He's having conversations. says so much so that he ends up having some debates with some philosophers out there, and, and uh, they exchange ideas to the point where he can, then gets called up to the Areopagus. And what this is is like the, the courts of that area. Uh, the courts like a criminal courts, yeah, but also uh, it's more of like the courts of ideas in a sense too where this is where you would discuss the new information, the new knowledge that maybe you had, and they would decide, is this true or is this false? Is this worth us learning and maybe building a new uh, temple for, or is this something we should just throw away to the side? And so they ask him in verses 19 and 20, may we know what this new teaching is that you are bringing, uh, that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. What's funny, again, is you see Luke pipe in for a moment. You know, he's the author of, of it. So he pipes in for a moment in verse 21. It says, all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking and listening to the latest ideas. I think it's funny. Luke wants to make a mental note for everyone. Hey, you know what? They're just a bunch of know-it-alls. Like, Luke, Luke's an educated guy. You know, I think that's part of why he maybe calls him out on it a bit. You know, he's a doctor by trade. He's an educated guy. He, he goes through and he documents what Jesus does. He investigated it with all his knowledge, with all the training that he got. And so he goes and he sits with the Athenians and he's looking at them and he's like, these guys don't do anything. They just listen to ideas. They're all a bunch of talking heads in the college level. Uh, they're not doing anything. They're not practically doing much here. And so he kind of calls him out on it. There's a little bit of a conflict there that I think that it's awesome that he just made sure that stayed around forever. <laughs> but now uh, Paul is going to approach the Athenians and present some things to them. Verse 22 says, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at the objects of worship, I even found an altar with an inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant to the very things you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim. Paul praises them at this moment and says, you know, you guys admit. You know, you're really trying to gain knowledge. You're trying to chase after truth. You're trying to, you're trying to understand. That is admirable. Good job. Way to chase it. But you also not only do that, you admit that you don't know it all. You admit that you're ignorant of some things. Well, those things that you are ignorant of, that's exactly what I want to proclaim to you. That's what I want to talk to you about. So he praises them in that, in that uh, situation. Verses 24 and 25 it says, now this is his claim of who God is. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands and he is not served by human hands. As if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life, breath, and everything else. Now, remember where he's at. Uh, this place uh, that he's, he's having this conversation with is actually on a hill that would have overlooked the entire city. So when he says uh, God is not in any of these temples, his backdrop, his background, he maybe even motioned with his hand. All these temples out here. It's a city full of temples. It's a city full of idols. It's a city built up about all these other religions. And he's saying God is not in any of those things out there. Not even our temple. Not even the synagogue. God's not in there. 
He doesn't stay within a building. He's much bigger than that. And then he appeals to their logic. He says he's so much bigger than that. He created the heavens and the earth. Why would he go where we've built? You know, I think about this moment when you go to L.A. or you go to San Francisco, New York, or Vegas, or any of these places, they have massive buildings that we've built. And they're impressive, right? You walk around, you're like, these are so big. That's so tall. Wow, that's so crazy. It's impressive. But then you go stand in front of one of the sequoias, for instance, and you look up and you say, that thing is alive. It is massive. It's been around for ages. Or you stand in front of the, great, uh, the Grand Canyon and you look at that and you just feel the awe, the wonder of God. And he says, that's where God dwells, in his creation, not in a building. And so that should be a, something even for us today to remember and to always understand, you know, this building is nice, but God doesn't dwell within the building. He dwells within his creation, in us, his people. And so that's what he's calling him out. He's saying, you know, hey, God is so much bigger. He's so much more powerful than you guys are realizing. And he doesn't need us, but we desperately need him. Verse 26 through 28 says, For one man he made all nations. They should uh, inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appropriate time and history and boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would speak or would seek him and perhaps reach out for him. And find him through, though he was not far away from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Paul's explaining, you know, God has been working through all of human history. It's been the same God. There's only one God. And all these different idols that you have, And maybe it's just your interpretation of who he truly is, but I want to reveal now to you who he is. He's not any of those things. He's God. He's here for us. He wants to work with us. He wants to educate you. He wants to help you learn who he is. And so he starts to proclaim to them who Jesus is. And then he also quotes two philosophers in this moment. He says, For in him we live and move and have our being. Uh, this actually comes from a, a man named Epimedides. Um, he's a famous philosopher uh, that lived about 500 years before Paul. And Paul actually quotes him twice. He quotes him here in Acts, but he also will write to Titus in uh, chapter 1, verse 12, where he will uh, also quote him there. So he quotes him, and then he quotes another uh, man, uh, Aratus, uh, in verse 28, where he says, uh, We are his offspring. So two philosophers. So he's, he's really talking about the fact that like these are the people that these Athenian people would have recognized. As soon as he brought up their, their quotes, these would have been things that they would have recalled at that moment and been like, oh, he's, he's quoting so-and-so. And so he's actually contextualizing Christianity a bit. He's saying, you know, hey, you guys have already been searching for this truth. Even your own poets and philosophers, they call out to want to know more about this. I think this is really so amazing and powerful for us as Christians today to understand. You know, you have a unique perspective on the world because you know Jesus. If you know God, you have a different worldview than most of the earth, most of the people out there. When you listen to songs, when you watch movies, when you watch shows, 
we, sh- we, sh- we have a different perspective as Christians where we can see something and we can see it for what it truly is. We can start to see the message behind their message. You know, if you listen to a song and it's talking all about empowerment and how we can self-discovery and that's what everything is all about is, is you know, you can find the true you, women empowerment, men finding true masculinity, whatever that looks like. Uh, you know, all those things that can be pushed out there and we could say, you know, that's not where you're going to find your true identity. It's not going to be within yourself. We only find our identity truly when we submit ourselves to Jesus, when we wipe away our old self and then he gives us our new self where we are made a new creation in God and that's where we find our true God-given identity. That's what he has for us. Or when we say you are self-worth and uh, you know, we, there's all these songs, there's these movies, it's all this stuff out there that says you know, this is what makes you worth anything. And God says, no, I died on the cross for you. I love you. I give you your value. As Christians, we have a different perspective on things. And it's worthwhile to ask questions. You know, I invite parents, you know, listen to the songs that your kids are listening and then ask them questions about it. What do you think that song's telling you? What do you think God would say about that? Where do, what truth do we know from the Bible that would maybe counteract that song? I know I got a lot of kids right now. They're like, oh, Jace, <laughs> thanks, Greg, right? But hey, it's good. I, you can listen to your songs now with your parents. You know? <laughs> they just have some questions for you afterwards. Praise God. Those are the conversations that we can have. We can start to invite our kids to start to see things from a Christian perspective, to ask good questions. That's exactly what Paul's doing here. He's pointing to their culture, to the things that they say are important in their life, and he's saying, but let me help you unpack that fully. Let me give you the ultimate truth behind that. And then in verse 29 through 31, it says, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design or skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when we will, uh, when we will judge the world. Where the, for he has set the day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed and has given proof to this in everyone by raising him from the dead. Human beings were made in the image of God. You want to know what God is like? Think of humanity, but take away all the sin. Take away all the wrongdoing, all the hurt, all the anger, all the, the pain, all the stuff. Think of how humanity would look if you didn't have any sin, and there you get an image of who God truly is. Joyful, loving, connected, community. Awesome family. That's the beauty of God. Paul is saying, listen, in the past, God has overlooked a lot of ignorance in in your life. But the time of ignorance is done. It's time for you to understand who he is. It's time for you to stop guessing and just to know truly who he is because he wants you to know him. And then he shares, you know, about Jesus. He says, there was a man that who uh, he, he was, came from heaven, he was born a baby, lived a perfect life, and then died a death for sinners, for all of us. 
And he gave up his life for us. He traded his perfect life for our imperfect life and died on the cross for our sins. And then three days later, he rose again. That's Jesus. That's the man who's going to come to judge the world, who's been come to prove who God truly is. At this, some people believed, some people wanted to hear more, and some people just rejected. Paul was able to use questions, listen to people, what they were saying and thinking, and he was having conversations with people, both at the temple and the marketplace. It led him to a place of speaking in the highest academic level in Athens. But that all started with just small conversations, friendly, around-the-table conversations. And here uh, here at Sunrise... We're starting with small conversations, connecting with one another, uh, having spiritual conversations with one another with this No Longer Strangers campaign. But the next step with this is not just to settle here and say, now that we all know each other, we can all live happily by ourselves. It's to then start to now outreach to people around us, to extend an arm to them and say, you know, let's Come over and have, have some dinner with us. Meet my family. Let's talk to coworkers, to friends, to neighbors, to those people that don't know Jesus, to go out and have coffee with them and connect with them, to ask them questions, to share your story, not to, not to make them projects, not to say, oh, I'm going to save you. I got to work so I can make sure that you say this prayer and you can be saved. No, it's not about that. We want people to know Jesus through friendships, through relationships. Not to bring them to church, but to bring the church to them. I'm going to say that again. Not to bring them to church, but to bring the church to them. Because wherever God and his people are, there the church is. You are the church. It's not the building. It's the people. And so he calls us to go out and share his good word, to share uh, our lives with people, to ask questions of people around us. You know you can ask questions of people. That's okay. That's actually a loving thing to do. When someone is sitting across from you and they, they bring up a point, maybe they say something and it just catches you wrong, to ask them questions about that. Would you explain what you mean by that? When you use that term, what do you mean by that? Like, I don't understand. Can you help me to understand more? Those things are actually good things for us to do, to ask questions, uh, not necessarily to, to convince yourself of what they say, but to uh, uh, you know, ask questions so you understand. And that can sometimes be the thing that helps that person on the journey of their faith to really start to believe, to really start to question, because so often people have these little answers that they've, they've kind of come up with. Now, this is my answer to this. And if you ask them beyond that, they haven't thought that far. Because this bumper sticker answer made sense to me, and so that's what I said I believe. But if you prod at it a little bit, poke at it a little bit with some questions, not aggressive, you're not trying to argue, not debating them or anything like that, but just trying to understand. Sometimes that helps someone to think beyond their simple answers. You know, if they say something like, I believe in science instead of uh, anything that religious brings, you can ask questions and say, well, why do you think that science and faith have to be separate? Can't, can't those things be together? Why or why not? Can you help me understand your perspective? Or uh, are there limitations to science? Do you feel like science has limitations? Like it can help us to understand so much stuff, but there's some limitations there? Do, what do you think, where do we get morality from? Where do you think those things? How do we determine if something's good or bad? Like, can you help me understand your perspective? 
And even simple questions like that can sometimes cause someone to be like, whoa, I guess I've never thought about that. And it can make them chew on it. Not that you're trying to get them, like at that moment, like, ha-ha, Jesus, you got to know Jesus now. It's not the point. It's to have that conversation. It's to build the relationship. It's to get them to think so that when they walk away, they're walking away with what uh, Greg Kolkel in his book Tactics talks about as he talks about how you share your faith with people, uh, a pebble in their shoe, just something that bugs them. I didn't get an answer of that. I didn't have a good answer to that. What is an answer? Because my belief truly to the core, is if you continue to dig down for truth, ultimate truth, you always find God. If you keep digging, if you keep doubting your doubts, if you keep chewing on it, you're eventually going to lead you to the cross. It's going to lead you to God because that's ultimately the ultimate truth. And so it's okay for us to ask questions, to have those conversations. And then at some point they might say, you know, I don't know. What do you think? Then you're able to share the gospel, to talk about your perspective. Now, I already hear the alarm bells in some of your guys' mind. Wait, Greg, but if I ask questions, they can ask questions of me. And what if I don't know the answer? Like, what if they ask hard questions? And I, I'm, I don't know. I'm still, like, figuring this out. I'm still walking my faith. I still got a lot of room to grow. And to that, I would say, praise God. Praise God that you don't know the answer. Tell them. Tell them in that moment. Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. I'm going to have to do some research on that. Would you mind if uh, I talk to you after I do some research and you can help me think this more, think about this more? Well, now you've admitted you don't know something, you're going to research it, and that you're going to have another conversation afterwards. You've just built a relationship. And you showed them that this is a safe place to change your mind, to think things through, to admit you don't know something. Those are things that we can do as God's people. And then here's the tricky part. This is the part where some of us fall apart is you got to go research it. You got to go learn it. You got to go out there and find it. And there's so many things out there that you can learn from. Uh, you, can, uh, you can even just within Sunrise's own sphere, you can go. Uh, we have Sunday nights uh, about twice a year. We have a class that we put on where it's going deeper into our faith and we're asking hard questions. And you can plug into that uh, when that comes up. It'll come here in the, the fall here soon. Plug into that. Go bring some questions to that. Talk about it as a group. That's a great ability to learn from God's word and from God's people. Uh, every Sunday morning, there's a class, I believe at 8.30, right? 8.30, there's a class there. They're going through the creeds. Uh, which is all just question and answers. Bring your questions there. You know, talk about it there. Learn some things. Grow in your faith. Um, we're going to be starting family night on Wednesdays here soon, uh, just about a month away from that. Uh, come to those things and learn. Bring your questions there. Talk about it. Uh, if all else fails, talk to one of our elders or pastors here. And, uh, you know, we're basically, in a lot of ways, uh, a bunch of Bible nerds. And so we love talking about Bible stuff. So if you just give us an inch, we're going to take a mile. So just to prep you on that one, you're going to be like, I just need one answer, Greg. And I'll be like, well, let's talk, you know. <laughs> uh, so just to prep you, but we love to help you guys to learn. That's, that's why we do what we do, is we want you to grow in your faith. But then it's on you to do that research and then to take it back and continue that conversation. Don't, don't say, well, I'm just going to take you to my pastor or my elders. I mean, we came there to, to talk with people, of course, but you're the one that God has placed in that situation to share that truth with them. Praise God for that. See, in the past, I think there's been a fear in Christianity that anytime we have doubts or we have questions that we got to suppress those. We got to push them down. Just have faith. 
I think that's, that's a misnomer. That's, that's wrong because I think when we question and we have doubts, when we bring those things to God, it can actually be the, the launching point to our faith growing all the more. When you got questions, don't leave those things festering. Seek, research, go knock. Scripture says you will find the answer. You will find God. And so as we dig in, keep digging, keep going, keep researching, keep talking, keep questioning, and watch what God can do with you. So Sunrise, here's the challenge for us. Dare to have conversations beyond our community. Dare to be the church wherever you are. Dare to reach out to people around you and start conversations with them. Dare to question them. Dare to say, I don't know. Dare to dig deeper. Dare to build a relationship with others. Dare to answer the question that God asked Isaiah when he looked out and he said, who will I send? And he asked that about your community, about your workplace, about your kid's school, about your favorite restaurant or your hair salon, into your homes and into your family, who will I send and dare to be the one that says, Lord, send me. Not that I'm perfect, but you are, and you will help me to do anything that I don't know. Dare to answer that prayer. You know, the amazing thing is that chapter 18, Paul takes out, off to, uh, from Athens. Uh, but just before that, the last verse of, of uh, chapter 17, verse 34, it talks about this man, Dionysus. Dionysus was there at that meeting. He listened to what Paul said. And he had always been a philosopher. He had been a well-educated man. But church history says at that moment his heart changed. And we now know him as Saint uh, Dionysus. He uh, followed Paul for several years. And then he actually went back to Athens and lived there the rest of his life, leading the church of Athens until he died as a martyr for the faith. You don't know what your life can do, what a simple conversation can do. Paul wasn't even supposed to do anything while he was in Athens. But through conversations, the church started there and blew up. Let us be a church that is having faith-filled questions and conversations and honoring our God. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for how you use people like us, people who don't know it all, people who struggle, people who are imperfect, people who uh, mess up at times. God, you use us to do amazing things, God. And I pray right now that you would help us to think about who is it that we're supposed to be sharing you with, God. How can we bring the church to all those different places that you take us each and every week? Tomorrow, when we wake up and we go somewhere, how can we be the church in that situation? How can we be you in that situation, God? Jesus, we, we need you. We need you to lead us to be able to do any of those things, God. So help us to be the people who relies on you in those situations, who trust you, who, who uh, in faith opens our mouths and asks a question, who invites someone over for a conversation to connect with them, God. Jesus, take control of our, our, our tongues to be able to listen to people, to silence our mouths when we need to be quiet just to listen, but then to, to ask questions that you have for them. God, thank you so much that you also invite us to, to question, that we are not a mindless faith that just needs to be blind and walk aimlessly following you, God, but you give us abilities to use our brains and, and to think things out and, and to reason. And in the end of that is always you. 
Help us to question. Help us to grow. Help us to learn. And help us to do that stuff together as your church, God. Thank you that we're not by ourselves, but we have this family of believers here that we can do those things with. It's in your holy name that we pray, Jesus. Amen.